1: I've pretty much been locked down the whole time. I was on tour actually uh, up until March of last year. And I came back on the 14th of March or it could have been April. Whenever the lockdown actually started, I got home about four days before then. So I've just been here the whole time and there's been a lot of ups and downs. And yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's just, it's mind blowing that it's still going.
0: Yeah, it's a weird one because it's like we're kind of juxtaposition because although everything is, it's like we've been the same, we've kind of been unlocked on the whole way through, aside from like a brief two months we were out of it. But although it's kind of stayed the same the whole way through, like on a personal level, it feels like there's been so much change just as a result of everything that's going on and the kind of craziness. I mean, I imagine particularly more so in America with the election and everything too.
1: Yeah, it totally feels that way. I feel like there's actually been a lot of growth for me because I had to sort of face a lot of stuff that I think that when I was touring so much, I didn't really get a chance to analyze and and sort of look within and critically think about. So on this end of it, you know, almost a year later, it actually has, actually the change has been good, but there was certainly moments that were very tumultuous in the midst of it. Do you feel healthier as a result of it? I do actually, yeah. I feel, I just started, I started going to therapy two or three months ago and uh, just kind of like I've just been sort of figuring out why I get so anxious and so paranoid dread kind of feelings and and just all the sort of negative emotions that have sometimes been in seem like they take control of me and, and make me do things that usually are bad for me. And so learning about how to control those is actually learned has been really good. And I do feel healthier and my mind feels really clear. I feel like there's a bunch of clutter that is getting cleared out. If you're
0: more in control of your emotions at this point, does that impact the way that you express yourself in your songwriting and the way you kind of channel them?
1: Yeah, sort of. I think right now what's been really interesting is that ever since I started doing a little bit more inner work, like I was just talking about, I find myself a little bit more patient when it comes to recording and producing and, and even just in, in all aspects of the creativity that I'm doing on a daily basis, where I think the best way to describe it is that I've been sort of messing around recording with a computer for the first time. And in the past, I found it to be so frustrating trying to use a metronome and work with compressors and all this stuff. So that's why I mean a lot of my old stuff is to cassette because I just didn't have a computer, but for the last couple of years I have had a computer. I just haven't really had any interest in using it and for some reason with this extra space opening up in my brain instead of seeing the computer as a difficult blockage towards getting to recording a song it's almost i'm seeing it as a thing that i can use to just tinker with the song even more and and sort of like engage with it on an even deeper level so right now it's it's more so the creativity in producing the music versus writing it because a lot of the stuff i'm working on i wrote sort of right before and in the very beginning of trying to fix my brain
0: and now you have a whole kind of new Box of tools to um, what would the expression be to kind of tinker with it and change yeah. it and express those songs.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting, but it's also really frustrating because uh, I mean, technology is so much different than analog gear. And in analog gear, when it stops working, it's because a rubber band broke or something. But <laughs> when it's software, it's like you know, have you cleared your cache? Have you updated this? Have you plugged in the driver it's it's been a pretty gnarly learning curve and some days have been very frustrating but it's i feel it feels good because it it feels like something different and the newness of the experience of working on these new songs is what's exciting me about it
0: when was the last time you kind of experienced an excitement like that in a similar way with that newness and that freshness
1: let's see that's a really good question um in in the early, earlier phases of quarantine, I have a bunch of friends that make kind of, um, I'm not sure what the proper term is for it, but like SoundCloud, um, like Cloud Rap. I've been in touch with a lot of them online for a long time. And, and earlier in quarantine, when everything was really locked down and everything was very confusing, one of my friends I had talked to about making songs with for a while, he's called Fantasy Camp. I was like, dude, let's just do a song. And so he sent me a beat and I sort of, Wrote a hook on the beat, and I wasn't rapping, I was singing, but it was the genre was so different than what I do uh, with folk music and stuff that it, that is the first time that I started to feel that excitement. And that also paved the way for me, I think, getting a little bit more comfortable with the computer because I wasn't going to take these beats and bounce them to a cassette and then record it, you know? So doing that. That first song and then I, I made several more was the first time that I felt that kind of like, wow, this is fun, like fun in a different way. I still obviously think sitting and just playing guitar and singing is ultimately really fun. But I guess being able to hear my voice with a bunch of crazy auto-tune on it and and just things I've never heard before. So I'd say about about a year ago is when I felt the excitement that I think led me here. To my new excitement 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> it was that
0: paper rose haiku. Uh
1: huh. Yeah.
0: You. It's still kind of you at the core of it though. Like those beats that you're kind of singing atop of, still have that like acoustic spine to them.
1: Yeah, that's. There's this producer um, collective called Garden Avenue that uh, I started talking to another guy after I did the first song with Fantasy Camp. There's this producer called Taylor Morgan. And, and a bunch of other ones, and this guy Brody, and, and Forever, and, and the list goes on and on, but they do a lot of that sort of acoustic guitar. They love guitar-based loops for their beats, so the beats are kind of emo, for lack of a better word, And and they would send me the beats that had that kind of acoustic feeling so that it suited my voice a little bit better than something that was just a banging, you know, whatever else it may be, so... That's all, that's all thanks to Fantasy Camp and Garden Avenue and Taylor Morgan. How did putting those effects on it change the way that you think about your voice and kind of perceive it? It just, it felt like something that was off limits to me. Not actually, because I don't really, I would never stop myself from doing it. But just because of the way I've recorded in the past, I've never even had the option of using auto-tune or whatever. 'Cause I would when we put auto-tune on them, I'd say turn it up super high. Cause I didn't want to use it to fix the note. I just wanted to get that kind of crazy sound as an effect. And and being able to just be in my room, probably drunk, uh, just sort of doing these crazy takes that are not perfect, uh, and then just putting a bunch of auto-tune on it and then hearing it blend in with that world of sort of trap cloud whatever you want to call it it was exciting to me because i love that kind of music like i love rap music so much and just to feel like i was then a part of a rap song uh was just exciting to me and it, and it sounded cool and so it's it's kind of opened my ears up to you know where can we take uh like field medic stuff and and trying to and that's what i'm sort of investigating with the computer right now with all this Stuff that I got.
0: When you're doing your more traditional acoustic stuff, I know that you often set a limit of three takes or something. Do you have to do mm-hmm. a do you have to do a similar thing here so you don't become paralyzed by infinite choice? Do you have to put parameters down in a similar way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, these new songs I've been doing, I have been multi-tracking them because I want to have the ability to chop and screw them and, and play around. But uh, the first day that I got this microphone. I uh I accidentally did like not actually an infinite amount of takes, but a lot of vocal takes because I was like, it's cool, I got a computer, I'll just comp the vocals, this is a whole new world. And then I got into what I call the take dungeon where I just couldn't get the right feeling. So then later that night I was listening back. I did a bunch of takes for every song I was working on, which is I have like seven right now. And I was trying to find a a good take and there just wasn't a good take because there was too many so i just deleted everything and i went back to the classic three takes only vibe and it's just it's the same thing it's just i'm just singing now instead of playing the guitar at the same time
0: does that enable you to approach it in a different way when the focus is solely on the voice and you don't have another part of your brain kind of you know working at the guitar at the same time
1: it's actually kind of difficult for me. It's it's a new challenge because I started recording live with the guitar at the same time because in my old band, we would go to the studio and, and record multi-track. And I always thought that the vocal takes I got sounded a little bit the way that I thought they sounded in my head when I was playing. And so when I started doing solo stuff, it's just all been live. And it has always been, I think that I sing more naturally when I'm not Hyper focused on singing because I can't be because I'm also playing, and so just singing. But but I think I've gotten to a point now where I you know I was able to recognize that I was in the take dungeon and I and I could just delete everything and sing it three times. So I think I'm finally ready. That's been the scariest part for me is being finally ready to try multi tracking because I know there's so many opportunities that. I don't really have with my live recordings as far as remixing or you know shape-shifting the song so yeah it's it's challenging in a weird way oddly enough it's more challenging it sounds like now is the right time to do it though
0: like based upon what you're saying there when you have this kind of clarity and perceptiveness about your creative process where you can notice that you're in the Tate dungeon and you know to put the parameters down Something you maybe wouldn't have been able to do had you started playing around the computer, say, like five years ago or something.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely it. It's It comes with what I was talking about with that sort of new space in my brain is just being able to y- realize that I'm in the take dungeon and then say, all right, then I'm just not going to be in the take dungeon anymore. Instead of just saying, fuck it, I got to go smoke a million cigarettes and, and come back to this tomorrow, you know, could just sort of be, you know, handling things letting stressful situations pass. And I think that, yeah, wherever I am with my uh, brain right now, I feel like I'm finally confident enough in myself to be able to solve that problem, which is something, the problem of being able to multitrack, which is something I think I was just intimidated by.
0: And once you overcome that intimidation, it then transforms into excitement
1: exactly
0: yeah that's a beautiful way to put it <laughs> where are you where do you record your vocal text is it the same place that you would usually do it if it was you and the guitar
1: yeah so i'm just in my room all the stuff i've done so far is in my room i call my room studio b my roommate who's also a musician derek's head turned our garage into a studio so he's got a bunch of gear and a tape machine and all sorts of stuff so we did a lot of the several of the more kind of beautiful sounding recordings from floral prince were in the garage but then everything else or not everything else but a lot of stuff i record in studio b which is just my room so this new album i'm working on will probably be all done in studio b and uh but you know there's studio b is still relatively young because i've only lived in this house for 3 years i think so yeah, this might be the last record I make in Studio B because we have to move in a few months. How come? Our landlord is going to be renovating our house to give to his son because his son's getting married. We live in a nice neighborhood, but the reason we're able to afford it is because the house is kind of old. They essentially bought the property so that they could hold on to the, the, the area. And now the time has come where they're going to knock everything down and build a crazy house in place of this kind of this house has a really nice energy and a really nice vibe so i'll be sad to see it go but that's just life
0: is that a big thing in la kind of gentrification or i don't know if I, would you class it as
1: gentrification
0: knocking it down to build up a modern house
1: um i don't know i don't know if that's really the case as much like here in burbank because it's already sort of just whatever it is it's uh yeah i don't know
0: How do you decide upon the room that you're going to record in when it's just the one mic?
1: That's a good question. I did a lot of my older stuff when I lived in San Francisco. When people would leave the house, I would record some songs in the kitchen because there was a kind of nice natural reverb in there. You know, When I have the option to choose, sometimes I will choose a place, a space that has a specific sound. But I think more or less, I choose just more based on what is uh just available to me, so as it stands, I don't really consciously choose where I record. I just record where I am where wherever I wind up. It's a very practical approach I might be a practical person the more I think about it, the more I get older and, and realize things uh i just I like to just get things done, and i'm not I, I always I used to say conscious, not precious. That was something I had written on a tiny notebook of mine, just as a reminder to just keep it real, get it done. Yeah, I think as well, if you
0: want to get good at something, you can't be too precious. You've kind of got to be very prolific and write every day and work on new music every day.
1: Yeah, and I I, I need to do that too. I, I just love creating stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm just, if I, the, the instant that I stop doing things, I start to... That's when I start to kind of overthink and maybe spiral out and, and start to get sort of anxious and have those kind of tendencies towards self-destruction. So creativity is sort of my savior. How old were you when you noticed that desire and that need to create things? Well, I think I always wanted to make music. You know, when I was a kid, I used to be a, a yo-yoer and I was a magician as well. And, I, and both of those, although they're not music, they, they are fairly creative and sort of hands-on. Um, And I started making music a lot when I was, I think, like a freshman in high school. But but before then, I I would play around on a guitar, but it really started to become my safe place, I would say, around sophomore, junior year of high school, because that's when I started having really bad anxiety and, and some panic attacks and Not really, I think a lot of emotions that I didn't really know what they were or how to control them. And that's when music, I realized that music was very grounding for me. And it was something that would take me out of that really dark place and, and, you know, help me find words to describe it maybe. Or just even distract me for the length of a song or, or what it took to write it. So, I'd say around 15, 16 is when it became really, really important and integral.
0: Did the music have like an emotional weight from that point then, from quite early on?
1: Yeah, it's it's either, my music's always either been extremely emotional or extremely silly because I think, like a lot of people, humor is a coping mechanism for me. So making up really, really silly stuff and just indulging in silliness is, is one way for me to really let go of some of life's heavier feelings. And then sometimes I just get so overwhelmed that the music is has been you know there's several unreleased songs that are just so you know in hindsight hyperbolically melodramatic that they just couldn't be released because they're they're sort of i think when when songs are too have too much extreme emotional weight they feel sort of self-serving and and they almost just work for me like a journal entry that I'm just supposed to hear so that it's me talking to myself, but it's not for someone else. Yeah, there is quite a distinct difference between songs that you write for yourself and songs that you
0: write for other people to hear. But do you know in the moment which one it's going to be?
1: No, I don't really know because my policy in songwriting is just sort of being as honest as possible and and with time... The, my songs have become even more blunt, whereas my early music was. I was really obsessed with Bob Dylan for years, so I would be thinking about what whatever situation I was writing about, and I would just mask every single part of it in some unintelligible metaphor that wouldn't make any sense to any listener. Because I really like poetry, and I thought that that was cool, which it is. I I still think it is, but. As I've gotten older, I've sort of begun to appreciate more just blunt. Uh, sometimes there isn't a poem for a feeling you're having or a situation you're in. So, so no, I don't always know. And sometimes, sometimes I think that something that I'm making that's extremely brutal or or vulnerable is going to be too much. And then it turns out it actually a lot of people relate to it. So, but then sometimes there's still some things that just are too much period but yeah i'm i'm never really sure and sometimes i honestly don't know unless i i sometimes somebody will be over hanging out with me and i'll just start playing one of those songs uh and they'll be like oh what is that i like that song and i and i will be sort of shocked because i would assume that it would be too dark for a listener but i found that Music that's very dark or lyrics that are very direct sometimes, even if they leave me kind of vulnerable as the person saying it, uh, people tend to gravitate towards.
0: Do you get a different feeling when you show someone poetry or you show someone a song?
1: Yeah, I think poetry feels a little bit more vulnerable because uh, at least when I'm doing a song, I can sing and I can play a pretty little guitar part, whereas poetry is just... It's just the words themselves. And so I don't, I don't really get to act as a conduit to help the reader understand what I'm trying to say via tone or melody. So yeah, it is a little bit different.
0: I guess people are imparting themselves onto it in a different way in that case too. Yeah, absolutely. Was the, I mean, I'm in Scotland at the moment, was the zine that you used to run called Kaylee? was that kind of poetry that was infused in that? Yeah.
1: Wow, you know that's that's a deep that's a deep cut. Yeah, <laughs> Kaylee uh, was a poetry zine that I started. I think it was in 2013 because my dad had a zine in college called Kaylee, uh, and so when I first started making these little zines, I originally just wanted to make one that was sort of because I had so many friends in San Francisco that were really good writers or or visual artists or you know photographers and. I find that most people I meet, and when I start talking to them, they either they secretly write poetry or they secretly draw or they secretly have a fascination with you know, still life or whatever. So, I wanted to make a place where all of my friends and the people that I know could share their work and I would just sort of distribute it for them. And so, that was the basis of Kaylee was... This person would give me a photo, and this person would give me a poem, and this person would give me a little tiny piece of prose, and then I would print it, and then with my early cassettes, I would send that out. Nice. It's almost like a scrapbook between everyone's different yeah. ideas. Yeah, it's really cool, and, and so that, that was like the first kind of zines I made, and then slowly, uh, after a while, once I moved to L.A., I, in the meantime, I had been making other zines, so the, most, the zine I've done the most is called Hella Haiku. And I'm actually just about to finish volume 12 right now. And the first one of that came out in 2014. So I'm still making zines, but they've just been all my stuff. But my other friend who just moved to Germany, him and I have been collaborating on a sort of new Kaylee, which is going to be bigger because the the original Kaylees are just the one sheet paper zines. Uh, So there's only six really tiny pages, but there is a new Kaylee that's like a more of a, Chat book size that we have all the pieces for that we're just we're going to put together and put out hopefully in the next couple months so nice that made me that made me happy that you asked about that <laughs> the the haiku hella haiku was that collated into a book as well yeah that one was eventually put when i put out um fade into the dawn run for cover my label put together the f- i think at that point there was like 10 hella haiku out so we just compiled all the best ones and sort of made a hella haiku, just not volume, just that. So yeah, that's been put into a little book as well. Um, and then maybe once I get to volume 20 or something, we'll do another little book. The compiling the songs for
0: this new record that came out last year, did that feel like a similar process in the way that you're kind of pulling stuff from over the last few years and assembling it as one cohesive body of work?
1: Yeah, it was definitely interesting because a lot of the, the songs are from all over the place. It was confusing at times because the playlist shifted probably 5 or 6 times and there's tons of songs that got cut that were a little bit newer maybe, but then somebody would I would remember that I had this other song and then I would record it and that would take its place. So, yeah, it was a weird The weird thing though is that although it is somewhat of a compilation, it it's really cohesive thematically and that was surprising to me and that's kind of how I knew it was finished when I finally listened to it in the order that it is now it didn't even sound like the songs were from different times because they were so clearly there's this vein of a theme through the whole thing
0: it gives you something to center around doesn't it when you kind of have that emotional idea in your head or else it'd be quite intimidating I guess to try and pull from a lot of choice
1: yeah, I think that's totally right. Once I sort of figured out what it was, then it was easier for me to sort of think back on what else could go on there and what could replace maybe other songs that eventually got removed that didn't fit the newfound theme. When you figure out what it is, does that change your perception of the individual songs? Not, not really. I think it just it makes me sort of then see every individual song as like a, a piece of the other ones. And what's actually really bizarre is that this is the first album I've made that feels like, this is the first one I've ever made that really feels cohesive in that way, uh, which is interesting because it's, it is pulled from so many different places. I guess life moves in cycles in that way though, doesn't it?
0: Similar emotions kind of crop up at different points for you. Mm Hmm. Or do you deal with those emotions in different ways at different parts of your life?
1: I think this is the part of my life when I start dealing with those emotions differently because it, the the process of putting the record together was another sort of eye-opener for me as far as being sort of analytical and realizing like, man, you've been feeling this way for you know the last eight years and you seem to be turning to the same bad coping mechanisms every time and then you keep just talking about it in these songs that are kind of sad. And so that was another point in time where I I just sort of realized, like, I don't really want to feel like that anymore. So I need to stop this cycle of whatever it is I'm doing. So I think now is the time that I start to deal with things differently, hopefully. Is that realization
0: harder to come to? Like what you were saying, you know, part of that cycle where you release a song or write a sad song about it. When you're getting a certain sense of validation from that, you know, and people are resonating with it, does it make it harder to admit that that's maybe a slightly unhealthy way sometimes of coping with these things that are kind of cyclically occurring in your life?
1: Yeah, I think I think of it more in terms of like, uh, f- like highly functioning and sort of uh, living a positive lifestyle and feeling generally happy. I sort of revert to my. I feel kind of like a little nerd, and and I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. But I'm just I'm um, so intrigued by poetry and i'm reading the dictionary and i'm just riding my bike and like you know drawing pictures and of castles and shit like whereas when when i'm being negative i'm like binge drinking and chain smoking and like doing blow and like doing like bad boy shit that is like kind of feels like it's cool to talk about uh, which in a song, which it kind of is, not going to lie, but it's like not, it's not actually cool to do. And it's not, and it's 100% unhealthy for me to be in. And so, I think it's more so just realizing that, you know, it's okay to be who I am when I'm whole and when I am pure or whatever, not that I am pure, but you know what I mean, when I'm living a more positive way that it's it's okay to not I don't want to have to rely on people being like, you know, these are the songs I listen to when I'm just like having the worst hangover of my life. And I'm like, have to phone a friend because I feel so horrible. I would rather have, I want to make music that people are like, yeah, I'm just feeling, you know, reflective and I want to listen to something nice. So I'm not sure. I feel like I've been rambling now. I've lost the <laughs> point, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, the romanticism of that debaucher, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because we all have it's, it in us. Yeah, but. of course. Yeah, and I, I thought I was over it uh when I when I got sober, like sometime in 2019. I, I was actually on another podcast, and I was having a similar kind of conversation where I was talking about how I just realized that I just thought that it was cool to live in debauchery and to be a, a fucking wasteoid and just being, you know, I thought there was something cool about it, and I realized that it's not. But then lo and behold, once I got involved in doing that sort of stuff again, all of a sudden it was cool again and I thought it was cool. And, and it's just, it's, there's some weird internal dialogue surrounding it that is dangerous.
0: I guess because particularly, you know, if that happened again at the start of lockdown when the world's completely slowed down, there's an excitement about it at that point that you can't get from anywhere else in your life at that time.
1: Yeah, and also the thing is that when uh, I was drinking uh, in the midst of the pandemic, I, w- I kept rationalizing it because I was like, "Well, I could drink for the next three weeks. I'm not going to see anybody for like a year, you know." So there always seemed like there was time to catch up, but of course, that's just a rationalization. And 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 until I took a hard stance with myself, I wasn't going to stop, and I didn't stop until that time.
0: You do wonder if that kind of urge that we're speaking about though ever goes away. I mean, if you look at someone like Hemingway, who lived a life mm-hmm. of all this excitement, but still at the end was hooked on it and still got something from it that he couldn't when he was running about in wars or watching bullfights or whatever.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just trying to take it day by day and try to not get caught in, wrangled into the darkness I love Hemingway, though, and I love the stories he has to tell.:
0: Yeah, that's another part of the disturbing side to it, isn't it that he kind of manages to get a great beauty from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are like that and, and it's also it's interesting that it's so intriguing um, when you hear somebody talk about stuff like that or, or you know, artists that have this tragic arc it's it's just another piece of their story and it's I don't know why, but it makes it more interesting. Yeah, I guess if we already have that tragedy in us, it maybe
0: gives us a way to kind of validate it and put a positive spin on it.
1: Oh my God, you should be writing songs yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking
0: about that now because we always look at it in such a negative way as in we romanticize the kind of pain,
1: but Mm -hmm. perhaps
0: we already have that in us and we just, you know. It's a way of kind of putting a positive spin on it, not the other way around.
1: Yeah, or, or, or seeing it as something that's positive and, and it's a way to convince ourselves that it's okay because this other person has it too, which I think is true in a sense. But you can also tap into more universal truths as well, like um,
0: older now it hurts on your new record. Uh huh. But like that's not
1: looking at debauchery. Or oh, I guess it kind of is. Oh, I've contradicted myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like the, the, the outcome of debauchery you know like because in the chorus i'm like in my dream i'm just home making coffee and everything is chill and the verses are just like man like i don't even want anyone to look at me because i've just fallen so far from grace but i do think that song does have sort of a positive feeling to it because it's there's like a little bit of silliness in it too You started writing that backstage, right? Yeah, I was backstage at a venue in San Francisco. And I was like, my face was all red because I'd been like drinking for fucking months. And I just remember that, like, my face was all puffed and red and like oily. And and I, the the lighting in the backstage was really like yellow and kind of gnarly. And I just remember, and I, I, I cut my own hair. And I think I had just given myself, like, a bad haircut. A lot of times when I cut my hair, it looks kind of shitty for about a week while it grows in. <laughs> uh, that awkward and growing out phase, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just was, I looked in the mirror and I was like, fuck, dude, like, I look so shitty right now. And, like, I was also playing a, a show that a lot of the audience, like, I was uh, supporting a show, so I didn't really feel confident that, like, I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I stepped on stage and, and feeling like I looked so awful certainly didn't help that. Can you bottle that emotion you're
0: experiencing in that moment and tap into it later on or do you have to work on it as you're feeling it?
1: I think I could definitely bottle it. Uh, I just, you know, just so happened to be holding a guitar when I had that feeling. So I went there then, but I mean, I wrote, I began writing that song probably three years ago and then. I thought it was finished and then I had to make it, I had to change the, the chord progression and then I had to rewrite the second verse. So there was definitely a part of that feeling was still available for me to tap into to keep sort of, you know, making the song as good as it could be.
0: Was that a similar thing with House Keys? Because it was started a few years back as well, right?
1: Yeah, House Keys actually, I wrote, the, as it is, I wrote that whole song, I think, in 2014. The guitar part was one of the first super kind of complex feeling guitar parts I ever wrote. So that took me a long time to write. I was super obsessed with The Tallest Man on Earth at the time, and I still absolutely adore his music. And so I was trying to make a guitar part that had a lot of movement. It was sort of energetic. um, And so I wrote that. It probably did take a little while, but it's been so long now, I'm not even really sure what the the true length of time was. But it hasn't changed since I first wrote it. But the recording on Floral Prince, we actually recorded for my last album, Fade Into the Dawn. But because I had recorded it with just one microphone live, uh, it was really hard to get the vocals to sit somewhere in the mix that were clear. Um, so we had to like me and my roommate, Derek, who is an engineer, as well as a musician who has studio a, I was talking about, we had to sit on that mix for like a year and a half. And then when we were putting together floral prints, I was like, let's like, see if we can make house keys sound good because I think there's something there. So it has gone through a few iterations, but the first recording of it is just solo. What changed in that year that meant you could, you know, tackle
0: it head on and get it right?
1: Um, I think Derek learned a couple new techniques for mixing, and also um, when we did finally get the right mix for that song, I was on like a sober streak and a, and a posy streak as well. So I think I had a little bit more patience in trying to carve it out because when I'm not in a good headspace, I have really no patience for mixing. It just it freaks me out to hear the same part over and over and over again. And that's also why I'm drawn to live recording too, because it's just, I'm just like, well, it is what it is. I can't, I can't even be paranoid about a live take because I can't change it, you know? So at the time when we were mixing house keys for the second time, I think I was in a little bit more of a, probably a headspace closer to what I'm in now, where I was like, no, let's just like sit here and let's just figure it out. Does it impact the energy of the songs if you're in a place of patience as opposed to the
0: opposing?
1: I think I can still record if I'm in The Opposing, which I think is a nice a nice phrase for the dark side. Um, <laughs> I can record when I'm in The Opposing. Sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, totally. Um, but, you know, as far as every everything else just falls apart. Like, I just can't, I don't really have a lot of follow through or patience. So, you know, I can record the track live and... and play it because I feel like playing music and singing is sort of just like in my blood or something. So I can do that. But everything else, it's really hard to take it home, I I guess. So I guess energetically as far as just completing and, and doing something as good as it can be done, it's definitely affected.
0: What kind of place were you in? Were you in a place of patience for recording I Want You So Bad It Hurts? Because there's a very kind of delicate edge to the structure and the way that song flows.
1: I was just beginning my journey of patience when I recorded that. Um, that one was actually recorded in I think like 2017, because that song I also recorded for Fade Into The Dawn. I was like, I think I'd been sober for like four days when I recorded that, and I remember showing up to my friend's apartment, and I was kind of like, really like on edge a little bit. But when I wasn't on edge, the other I would, I felt really calm, and this this room had a lot of sunlight and. My friend Tommy and his girlfriend Amanda, Tommy played the drums and and Amanda played the bass are really sweet people and I felt really comfortable. And so we were able to get that to sound, you know, as you said, kind of delicate and nice, just I think because of their energy in that place. And yeah, I was exploring patience, but I wasn't definitely wasn't there yet.
0: It's interesting when you approach ideas in a time of transition it's a completely—it's mm-hmm. not an energy for either of them, is it? It's a completely different thing altogether.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting thinking about it because uh, I don't know—I'm just amazed that now that I really think about all the sort of transitional periods I've been in, even since that time or since the when I first wrote House Keys, it seems like there's been so many ups and downs emotionally and and, and mentally. But it's crazy that the through way through it all is there's these songs that have been recorded and they all kind of have a energy from whatever moment they came from both when they were written and when they wound up being recorded and then when they wound up being released which in the case of a lot of the songs from floral prince is like years and years later
0: you you leaked a few of them as well right before you kind of dropped the record but they kind of dropped on youtube sporadically
1: yeah i leaked a bunch of them i leaked the whole record one time like a year and a half before it came (laughs) out too on, on twitter um but there was like three or four different songs on it at that time but What I was talking about earlier about sort of sometimes making a song that I think is just for me, but I don't know, uh, and then somebody says they like it, that was kind of what I was doing with the YouTube leaking because I have all these songs and, you know, sometimes I'll, some days I'll just write a song that I think is intense and I'll just, that's like that song, It's So Lonely Being Sober. That song I thought was sort of just a personal journal song because it's sort of, vulgar and also it's, it's extremely vulnerable uh, and I just recorded it and I wrote it and I said well, I'm just going to put it on YouTube because I want to share it with you know whoever might want to hear it but I didn't really think that it was going to connect with people or I thought everybody was going to comment like I don't want to hear about how hard your dick is you know and but surprisingly <laughs> people were just like man I've been there you know and I was like oh shit so that's how it wound up on the album. Yeah, that's kind of one of the most, uh, you know, it's got some of the biggest emotional depth on the record. Mm -hmm.
0: Is that why it sits right at the center as well, or near the center?
1: Yeah, I think it also just, like, it comes, it sort of serves as a bridge between the first half of the album, which is a little bit more upbeat, and then the second half where everything gets sort of, it's almost all acoustic after that, where it is actually, there's like no drums beyond Track four or five or whatever headcase is. So we just essentially for that song as the bridge, it just goes all the way back, both musically and just thematically. At what point did it cement itself with that positioning in the album during like the process? I think I, there was a there was a point in time when I was concerned that the explicit nature, or rather the the you know, the subject matter of that song would get me in some sort of hot water. So there was a little while where it was like deeper on the album because I thought that like nobody would hear it or something just in case. But then uh, I'm not really sure how it wound up in the center there, but it just felt right in between. I think it's Headcase and Better Way. It's funny what we're saying about leaking songs as well. It's almost like a
0: cheat code. Like getting yeah, a well, sneak preview of what people think.
1: And I like it in that sense because it helps me know. And, uh, cause I'm such a overthinker and I get so paranoid about everything. Um, sometimes I don't know if a song is good or I don't know if a song is bad. And so it, it sort of is helpful for me to see, even if just literally one person, you know, finds that whatever the leak is and is like, man, I'm connecting with this. Then that's usually enough for me to be like, okay, this song's chill. Does that make it easier to release it as part of the record? It makes it easier for me, but then it makes it harder for the label because they're, they're, they, I think they're still coming around to the idea of the leak being a good thing. Yeah. The music industry is always a little bit slow,
0: isn't it, to catch up to things sometimes?
1: Yeah. I think that they, they just have a hard time feeling like the song, because when, you know, when, when a band releases an album, it's like, 11 new songs and everyone's like oh fuck like what song what's it gonna sound like and I think in my case with this last record only two of the songs hadn't been leaked and but what I had to kept telling them was that you know even though the songs have been leaked only 1,000 people heard it over the course of the last year you know so it's not even like everybody has heard it so bless their hearts I, I mean I'm glad they just I'm glad they even didn't actually get mad at me for doing that. Cause I feel like some <laughs> other label might be like, dude, you need to stop leaking your own album.
0: Did you tell them you were going to do it before you did or did you just drop it?
1: I can't remember. It, there was so many different times that I leaked it and so many ways in which I did. And I think at first, at first the YouTube leaks, which wound up being the majority of songs that actually made it on the album, as opposed to the SoundCloud leaks where a lot of those were taken off the YouTube leaks. I didn't secret. And then when some people would start liking the song, I might hit up the label and be like, "Hey, I just leaked this song like three weeks ago, and like it's been viewed like four hundred times. I think I'm gonna put it on the album now." And so, it was always after the fact they would find out. What were the two songs that weren't leaked beforehand? Um, the two, so "Headcase" wasn't leaked beforehand. Before your body goes, wasn't leaked, and I think uh, "Better Way" wasn't leaked. But that was also one of the singles, so like, I guess, I mean, yeah, but that wasn't leaked. So it's just Before Your Body Goes and Headcase were the only ones that weren't out before the album was announced. Interesting how the uh, Headcase song, part of it, you know, about
0: overthinking things was one of the ones that wasn't dropped.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I I held on to that one because that was a, a... there was the song that song headcase and there was another song called I Want a Party that was going to be on the album and now has been leaked after the fact but those two in the early stages I was like these are the like upbeat you know bops or whatever you want to call it so I was sort of saving headcase assuming that it was like special or something because also the, the label had said that they liked it too earlier on, as opposed to some of the other more confessional tracks, because I would send them so many different SoundCloud playlists. So I, I wanted to honor them liking that song enough to not leak it.
0: It's funny that we were speaking about um, Paper Rose Haiku earlier mm-hmm. as well, because the drum beat in Headcase is almost like a beat. As a, I know it's played acoustically, but it's mm-hmm. got that kind of looping rhythm to it.
1: Yeah, it's actually a it's a Korg Volca Beats drum machine, just like with a I recorded it through an amp, but it's a fun little. It's just a classic uh, like train shuffle beat.
0: It gives the song a sense of momentum though, and kind of keeps it. It's almost a like I know you're speaking on about the overthinking with like self-diagnosing on WebMD. It kind of gives mm-hmm. it an energy that parallels that spiraling.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a spiral track. I also think that song is interesting because the lyrics are so dark, but the instrumental is so kind of peppy and fun. That's what you want, music you can dance and cry to at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. With that uh, line as well about WebMD,
0: are you a hypochondriac?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm a recovering hypochondriac. I, and When I was in high school, I used to be really, really bad. It'll still happen to me sometimes. I feel like twice a year or something, I'll get convinced that something really horrible is happening and then I'll be really anxious about it for several months and then eventually I'll go to a doctor and they'll diagnose it and it'll be fine and it's this huge sigh of relief because I've been holding in this you know deep-rooted fear about some horrible thing that is gonna kill me or something so it happens sometimes but it's not as bad and I have some a little bit more control over it but it's It's definitely just within my nature to worry needlessly.
0: How did you cope with the
1: start of COVID then? Was that kind of a little bit of a fear in the back of your mind? Um, It was, but oddly enough, I think I'm just so used to being afraid of sickness and stuff that I actually wasn't really super afraid of it. Um, I obviously don't not take precautions with it because i i'm still a hypochondriac but it didn't like push me over the edge because i already wash my hands all the time and like you know do i mean i didn't i wasn't walking around in a mask prior to this but i was like oh yeah got to wear a mask definitely not trying to get covid i don't want to hang out with anybody so yeah but i felt like i was almost like ready to handle that because i've been so used to uh having something lingering in the back of my head for so long
0: Is becoming accustomed to the fear in that way a net positive or a net negative for your life?
1: I think being accustomed to it to the degree of eventually being able to just recognize it and and let it be will will be a net positive in the end. And that's sort of what I'm working towards with within sobriety and therapy and just like reading and, and listening to weird books about like philosophy and spirituality and stuff and everything that I learn gets me closer to just accepting what is and also finding out why I tick the way that I do. And I think that it will turn into a net positive to become accustomed to knowing, hey, you know, this is just me. This is just how I react. And the reason is maybe linked to X, Y, or Z from a long time ago. And and it doesn't have to consume me. So I think that it will be a net positive in the end because fear is is just you know in any sense regardless if it's hypochondria style fear or fear that you're going to forget your keys or whatever it's just it's just it's sort of just a wasted energy do the revelations you have about
0: yourself from reading those books on philosophy and the revelations you have about yourself from
1: creating music do they feel quite different i feel like they're all they're always just pointing to the same thing um it's kind of like uh, i'm telling myself something and then i'm i'm reading this thing and it's telling me the same thing in different words and then eventually they just collide and it just makes a bunch of sense and i think the revelation is actually the revelation is the easy part i think it's putting the revelation into practice regularly is the part that's difficult and requires some upkeep Uh, but a quote that i read in a book recently that i found really inspirational is Routine is the housekeeper of inspiration. That's just so true, is that it's easy for us to get overwhelmed and and worry about all these things needlessly and, and you feel like you can't handle everything. But I'm noticing the more that I just sort of lock into the routine and say, I'm gonna spend one hour doing this and then I'm gonna do I'm gonna chill for this amount of time and I'm gonna spend the next hour doing this and I have to go exercise at this time. It's like all of a sudden Everything seems to be getting done, even though if I approach it differently, it's just overwhelming, and I can't even touch it. Has your routine changed over the last kind of i don't know what are
0: we now ten months into this?
1: Um I mean, it's pretty radically shifted because I mean, there was a part where things were getting so bad for me in in quarantine that I was waking up and walking to the liquor store and just buying a tall can at like 10 in the morning and then just sort of seeing where that leads me and just drinking and smoking all day and fretting and now it's like it's it's just you know i'm just making sure i do the things that are that make me feel good and that inspire me and that sort of get my juices flowing and the routine is much more positive now do you do you highlight passages and phrases in these books you're reading in the same way you know you're saying you've read that quote. Um, I usually, when I find phrases and stuff that I like, I'll, I'll write them somewhere. Um, usually like I, I, on the back of my journal, you know, like a journal, the front is like a color and the back is just like cardboard or whatever. So I like to write phrases that I like there. And I'll also just like commit some of them to memory and just let them bounce around. Do you do
0: everything in the same notebook? do you do poetry drawing songwriting is that all in the one place or do you have different ones
1: i've tried a couple different ways to do it i usually i'll have one notebook that's like you know eight and a half by 11 size and that's what i'll journal in every day and i found that it's usually most effective if i do do everything in there so but in a way that's organized because when i start writing in different journals, then I can't seem to find, the, you know, the lyric when I need it. So, yeah, everything is pretty much in one journal. The drawing, sometimes I'll just take out a, a piece of printer paper or something. But, yeah, there's it's pretty much all in one notebook. And I used to carry around a tiny Moleskine notebook, like, you know, for the breast pocket. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I still will carry those around sometimes, but I finally sort of... Um, so I succumb to technology, so usually when I'm on the run, if I need to write something down, I'll usually just use like the notes app in my phone or or record a quick voice memo. Almost like a World War One soldier with the little moleskin
0: in the chest pocket, yeah. Play with a Bible. I, I,
1: I love the I love the tiny notebook, but I just had to come to realize that I wasn't really using it as much as I used to, and the the bigger notebook is just like my home base for everything, and that's where all the ideas wind up and sort of. Like there'll be pages in the notebook where it's like, you know, I have notebooks from probably two years ago that have lyrics for older now that are slightly different. And then there's a, you know, 25 pages later, there's the same lyrics, but there's a couple lines are different. And then now fast forward, you know, two notebooks ago, there's the finished lyrics, the finished lyrics. Is it a different process writing on a phone when it's an
0: endless scroll? Like if you're writing in a notebook, does the length of the page ever determine the length of the idea? Do you, can you keep it on the one page or can you let it sprawl over various ones?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think like, I just prefer to write on the page. I don't really, um, the only time I ever think about if it's going to fit on one page or two is sort of, sometimes I'll do an uh, automatic writing exercise where I say, I'm just going to put my pen down and I'm going to write until this page is finished or two pages are finished, or what have you. So that's when I'm just sort of counting pages. But other than that, no, I don't really think about it. Uh, and then when it comes to just writing notes in the phone, it's usually just like one word. Like the majority of what would be in my moleskin notebooks, it would be like robin's egg blue. You know, just somebody says some word that I think is cool, and I, it's just a little dash, and it says that. So that's kind of what it is. If I do put it in my phone, it's just literally a note, just a little phrase or a little word. When does the, the melody arrive to link these ideas together? The melody, honestly, I usually the lyrics write the melody for me. Well, at least I try to spend a good amount of time playing guitar most days as well. So, I will just sit down with my guitar and I'll, and I'll play through maybe some of the more challenging songs that I already have written, and then I'll just kind of sit and and fiddle around with different chord voicings and shapes and kind of write little musical parts and then when i've come to a point where i have collected enough lyrics or or maybe sometimes i'm just walking down the street and a lyric a whole passage just hits me then i just pick up the guitar and i play one of the little musical things i've been writing with the lyric that i either am thinking of at that moment or that i've written down and i want to put together and and sometimes it's just like it seems like most of the time I just sing it and it's just already there, the melody, because my songs aren't super melodic. They're just sort of me talking a lot a lot of the time. Do you think the kind of rhythm and melody of your songs comes from your writing and poetry as well? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that and also just, I think a lot of the rhythm in my music comes from how many words I'm usually fitting into each song because I have to find a way to make them fit. There's not a lot of my songs that, are just like sitting on a chair it's it's like sitting in the chair with the microphone and i got headphones on my head and my hair's kind of greasy gotta take a shower so it's like all the lyrics just they have to fit somehow so they create a melody